I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17, returning to a new chapter. In our review of the Gospel of John, we're looking at John chapter 17. And notice here in the text, it begins when Jesus had spoken these words. So there's a point of transition. He's transitioning from teaching his disciples to praying. In fact, this section has been called, this entire chapter, the, the Lord's Prayer. He lifts his eyes up to heaven, note, and prays to the Father. Now, most of us typically call the Lord's Prayer Matthew chapter 6 and Luke 11. You know, where Jesus is our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But technically, that would be the disciples' prayer. I know, we call it the Lord's Prayer, and that's fine. It's the prayer that the Lord taught to his disciples, but he actually didn't pray that prayer, particularly asking for forgiveness of sin. He had no sin to be forgiven of. This prayer here in chapter 17 follows this section of teaching to the disciples before Jesus would die on the cross. And really gives us insight to the kind of praying that Jesus did. The kind of praying that the disciples asked to be taught about. Jesus would often pray as he communed with the Father. Luke chapter 5 and verse 16 says that he got away to desolate places to pray. In other words, to get away privately by himself. Luke 6.12, it records that he went out to a mountain to pray. And he continued all night to pray. He was praying alone, Luke chapter 9 and verse 18. His disciples were with him, but he was praying alone. It wasn't a group prayer meeting. Well, here we have this great record in John chapter 17 of quite a lengthy prayer that Jesus Makes. It's really one of the greatest records of his prayer. In his commentary, A.W. Pink noted some key theologians from past who reviewed this prayer. Luther, he would say, said of this prayer in John chapter 17, This is truly beyond measure a warm and hearty prayer. He opens the depths of his heart both in reference to us and to his Father. And he pours them all out. It sounds so honest, so simple, it's so deep, so rich, so wide that no one can fathom it. Melanchthon, Luther's assistant, if you will, his friend and colleague said, There is no voice which has ever been heard either in heaven or in earth more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, and more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself. John Knox, the Scottish reformer, said that he had this prayer read to him every day during his final illness and in the closing moments of his life. He testified that these verses continued to be a great comfort and source of strength for his conflict. He said his soul was anchored here. Another commentator said this 
Prayer should be something to us like the burning bush was to Moses. For here we hear God speaking. And we should take off our shoes, bow humbly, being about to tread on this most holy ground. Chapter 17 is essentially a prayer, the prayer of Jesus. And I'll use this as a short series to discuss the prayer of Jesus. You can break it up in three distinct sections, verses 1 through 5, which we'll try to see how much of that we can get today. That's where Jesus essentially prays for himself. Then you have verses 6 through 19, he's praying for his disciples, the immediate disciples right there in that upper room. And then finally in verse 20 through 26, it shifts and he's praying specifically for those disciples that would follow that we would call the gathered church and that would be you. That's the section. This morning we're going to consider the glory of Jesus. This first part, verse 1 through 5. And let me just read that section for our hearing this morning. Verse 1, John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I've glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let us pray. Father, we come to you praying because Christ has taught us to pray. And as we hear this prayer recorded for us here in John 17, I pray the significance of it would penetrate deeply in our heart. I pray that Christ would be glorified now and forevermore. And it is in his name I pray. Amen. As I noted here in the text, as you see, Jesus prays the Father. He says, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And we've defined and described this word before, glory. It's a Christian-ish religious type of word, glory. You don't need to be overwhelmed by it. Essentially, glory can be thought of as beauty. And in particularly in relationship to God, it is the beauty of his divine perfections. When we sang the, the hymn, Holy, 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 it is another way to think of that would be perfect, perfect, perfect. Everything about God is absolutely perfect. Now you've seen things close to perfect, but never perfect. You've heard things close to perfect, but never absolutely perfect. In our world, there's always a certain degree of flaw because of the fall, right? We don't see this brilliance of perfection, but we could imagine something better than what we've seen. Well, that's who God is, something better 
than we've actually seen or experienced. And we've seen a lot of good things, and we've experienced a lot of good things, but God is way above that. This is, again, why the psalmist can say, in your presence is pleasure forevermore, never-ending. We know what pleasure is, and we enjoy that, but God's is never ending because it's in absolute perfection. And so Christ is praying for glory, that the Son would be glorified, that indeed the Father would be glorified. In this first section of this prayer, verses 1 through 5, and we'll see what I can get done with today, But I intend to go over really four aspects in which we can categorize this. And I've helped you out by on the back side of your bulletin, I've written these down for you. Just some hooks to hang this on, if you will. And the first one is he talks about his atonement. The second is glory of his authority. The third is the glory of his accomplishment. And finally, the glory of his ascension into heaven. Let's look at verse 1, and it refers to the atonement. Specifically, notice here in the text where it talks about the hour. Father, the hour has come. Now, we've been through John. John uses that terminology. He quotes Jesus saying that quite a bit. So we should have a good idea by now what this hour is about. If you haven't been with us, if you remember all the way back to chapter 2, his first miracle in Canaan, which was to demonstrate his glory, he tells his mother that It is not his hour right now when she wants him to do a big public miracle. Chapter 2 verse 4, he says, woman, my hour has not yet come. In chapter 7, and I'll just identify a couple places, again, he talk, he's talking to his disciples. In verse 6, he says, my time has not yet come. In 7.30, they were trying to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him, the text says, because his hour had not yet come. He spoke some words and people got upset. Chapter 8 and verse 20, as he taught in the temple. However, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And I hope you get the idea as you read through the Gospel of John that Jesus was always in control. He was in control to his very death. They couldn't lay a hand on him until he allowed it. He is a sovereign God at all times. Chapter 12 moves into what we would call Passover time. That is the time of his hour. All that had preceded all this ritual that had continued year after year after year. It was not pointing ultimately to something in the past, but something in the future. It was right now, at this time, Christ would die for the sins of the world. Right now. Passover time, 1223, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
That's what Passover is. That's what the death of Christ is. It is the beauty of his divine perfection, his grace, his mercy, his faithfulness, his covenant keeping. The list goes on and on and on. Everything about Christ is demonstrated and culminated right here. And this is why this hideous thing called the cross becomes so glorious and beautiful to us because it is a reminder of what Christ has done. He says if a grain of wheat, for example, it falls, unless it falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it comes back up and bears much fruit, illustrating the very death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the fruit that it bears. This is glory. That's what this hour is, and indeed Christ would be glorified in it. In chapter 13, the feast of the Passover is going on. And it says in our text that Jesus knew that this hour had come to depart out of this world and then to the Father. The very beginning of it, his death, and then the end of it, his ascension, the resurrection in between. He knew it was his time. It was this time. And so we get to the upper room discourse in chapter 17. After Jesus gives these final instructions to his disciples. He reminds them once again, this is Passover. Friday, he will die. He says, after he spoke in these words, he lifts his eyes to heaven. Father, the hour has come. It is time. Glorify your son, that the son would glorify you. The penalty for sin, beloved, is eternal damnation. The soul that sins will die. It is this divine hour in which Jesus, who has no sin, takes on sin. Our sin. Our sin, this sin of the whole world that is all past present and future who will repent and put their faith in Christ. That is who he dies for. Not each and every one indiscriminately as if there's some sort of bank that you can uh, go to and make a withdrawal. No, he actually atones for the sin of everyone who would be redeemed. John puts it this way in his epistle, 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation. That means the the covering, if you will, over that which is ugly, that which is sin, that which is disgraceful. Christ is the propitiation, the, the full payment for it, for our sin. And not only ours, but ours only, but the sins of the whole world. There is no one who has their sin atoned for outside of Jesus Christ. That's his point. This is the hour. The the propitiation is an appeasement of the wrath of God which is just on all injustice. We hate injustice. We don't want it to continue. But all injustice in Christ is taken care of. He is the propitiation for our sin. Paul would put it this way to his letter to the church at Corinth. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness 
of God. This is the finest hour. This is the hour of glory. You want to turn, you can, or leave your finger here and to return back. But if you want to go to Romans 3, Paul describes it this way. In 3.23, you might be familiar with all have sinned and fallen short of the what? Of the glory of God. That is, of his divine perfections. Anyone want to compare themselves to Christ? I think not. So we've all fallen short. That's the problem. We've fallen short and therefore are, are condemned already. But in Christ, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This shows, this was to show God's righteousness, that's the revealing of his glory in the Son. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. What does he mean? He didn't destroy everybody. Should have been destroyed. Right there in the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned. Why were they not killed on the spot? Yeah, we know the, their soul died. They, they began and, and they would eventually physically die as well. But why are they spared at all? Can I tell you one reason? Because of God's divine forbearance. And to symbolize that there was a death. There was a death of animals and skins and that put on them just to picture and to remind of what is going to happen in the future and it would absolutely happen at this divine hour to atone for Adam and Eve's sin and everyone in between up to this point and everyone in the future for you now. Can I tell you this? The atonement is only in Christ. The propitiation for your sin is only in Him. This is why we must preach Christ. It is an exclusive message. But you will not have your sins propitiated outside of Christ. God, in His forbearance, passed over them in the sense that He was looking for a future appeasement, a future atonement. All of the symbols pointed to that. And here it is now, the substance right before Him, and Christ will die. He shows His righteousness at this present time. That He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. In Christ Jesus. Those who put their faith in Christ. Your sins are actually propitiated. It has been done so on the cross. This is an awful hour. A great sorrow. But an awesome joy. Horrific hour. Greatest tribulation. But it is the hour of the greatest triumph. All glory and honor to Christ who tones for our sin through his blood. So he prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that he may glorify you. This glorifies God, does it not? The hour of atonement for sin, salvation, ultimately, should I say, concerns the very glory of God. We often think in terms of salvation of, oh, 
Do you want to be spared of the wrath to come? Because I assure you it's going to come. Do you want to be spared of eternal judgment forever and ever and ever? Because it will indeed come to all of those that are outside of Christ. All of that is true. But ultimately, if you'll notice here, this atonement is primarily for the glory of God. It is that Christ would be gloried, glorified so that God would be glory. The primary subject and object is Jesus Christ. The reason you're redeemed, beloved, is because God would want to display his glory. Christ displayed his glory. I hope that humbles you. When you stop to think about it, why would he bother saving you anyway? You could probably think of a lot better people to save. You could probably think of a lot more faithful people to save, friendly people to save, kind people to save, better looking people, people that should be on the way to heaven. But he doesn't take many mighty and noble. He takes a lot of me. And maybe you're in that boat with me. It is ultimately about his glory. And when you recognize the wretchedness of who you actually are, you will see the glory of Christ and his atonement. His atonement for you. This is what salvation is ultimately about. Not a secret path and way to an eternal state of bliss. It is about the glory of Christ. And I hope you see and savor it in the text. And if you haven't seen it, pray that the Spirit will enlighten your heart to see and savor Jesus Christ. Read and reread this prayer. Think and think through it. Meditate. Spend time. Spend time in prayer as well. Till this becomes known to you in a great way. And you respond in all glory, laud, and prayer. And praise to Christ. When you sing these hymns as we've done, they'll be more than perfunctory hymns. They'll be deep within your soul an expression of the glory of Jesus Christ. This is why we gather together as this church and sing this stuff. It's not just to show how good singers we are. It's because we love Christ and his glory that has been manifested to us. Christ prays for his glory. His glory is found in the atonement. The second aspect here in the text is in his authority. Notice here in verse 2, back to John 17, verse 2. He says, you have given him, notice here, authority over all flesh. Can I summarize this for you? Jesus is Lord. He has authority over all flesh. And the, the note here, obviously he has authority over all creation. The very beginning of John it says he created all things. He is the sovereign creator. Here specifically in this text, he is said to be, the focus point here is flesh speaking of humanity. 
Jesus indeed is Lord of all. In John chapter 3 and 31, here it, Christ explains to them that he who comes from above is above all. That is, he's pointing to his sovereign authority. When you think of Jesus Christ, you have to remember he condescended to earth. That is, he is above all. That's the state in which he exists. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth, Jesus would say, and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. This is why this is fantastic in his preaching and teaching. He is providing divine revelation from God and in a sense certainly condescends to be able to speak to us in earthly tones in which we can hear. But the imagery is this. This is God incarnate. One who is above all. One who has authority over all things and in particular all human beings. Christ has authority over them all. It is by the Father's decree and the very design of God that this authority over all then would be not only because of his position as God, but also in the decree of God that everything would be given to Christ, all authority. In 335 of John, and I'm going to stay in John as much as I can. I'll look at a couple of the complementary texts, but <clears throat> hopefully we've been getting this idea from John. 335 of John, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. That's the imagery there, that Christ has authority over all things by the very decree of the Father. He decrees that Christ has them all. It's all given to him. He then is the judge of the earth. He is the judge of all men. Five, chapter 5, verse 22. The Father then judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And down to verse 27 in the same chapter, chapter 5, and he has given them authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. This term, Son of Man, is a term of divinity. Divinity taking on flesh. It is Christ who will judge all the earth. It is Christ whom you will stand. Wouldn't you want to be hidden in Christ? He is the judge of all earth. It has all been committed to him. He has all authority over all things. And here, one of my favorite texts, Philippians 2. You want to turn? Mark this. We'll be back. But Philippians 2. Paul looks at this. This is often called the hymn of Christ. Great words to think on and sing about. Paul is using this as an illustration in Philippians 2 and verse 5 to remind those of the church of Philippi to have the mind of Christ. What's the mind of Christ? What should guide you in your mind? This one who has all authority, this one who is above, who, verse 6, though he was in the form of God, that is, he is from above, he is God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is, he would descend. He would come to earth. He emptied himself, verse 7, by 
taking on the form of the servant being born in the likeness of men. This is descending to earth from above. He comes down and how does he do it? He then veils his divinity, if you will. He veils the fact that he's above. He has to tell them that because they don't recognize it. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself then by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. This is the one who is from above, who has all authority, who has condescended to earth. That is his, that is what he has done. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What is it? Lord. Do you know him? He is Lord. He is the sovereign authority over all flesh. He has given him, bestowed on him that name that is by decree that Christ would be exalted, verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under, and under the earth and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to what? The glory of the Father. Jesus prays, glorify me that I would glorify you. This glorifies Jesus Christ in recognizing his authority. Can I tell you this right now today? Jesus Christ is in authority over all men. Every country, every continent, every people, every person, he is Lord. You don't make him Lord, he is Lord. What you do is confess him as Lord. And this is our charge and our urgent plea to recognize who he is. This is God incarnate, takes on human flesh, comes to earth below. But he he doesn't give up his authority. He has his authority. He retains it. And those who will reject his authority will receive condemnation forever and ever. And even in so doing will recognize that Jesus Christ is sovereign Lord. And that will glorify Father. Because whether it's heaven or hell, all of it is about the glory of God. Just wrath against those who would rebel against the Lord Jesus Christ. Just wrath. Right and righteous wrath. And gracious redemption for those who put their faith in Christ. Urgently plea to recognize his authority, his authority right now, whether you're regenerate or unregenerate. And certainly if you're redeemed, you will confess Christ as Lord and continue to make that confession all of your life. He gives him this authority, though, ultimately to bring about life. Christ's authority is given to bring about life. He talks about eternal life in our text in verse 3. Here I'd like you to turn back to John chapter 6 to recognize this. John chapter 6.
In our passage, verse 2, it says he has authority to give life, eternal life. We've been through John chapter 6, so I'll briefly remind you of it. The authority to give life, verse 37 of chapter 6, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. You see the connection of those who Christ has authority to give life to are those that are gifted to him by the Father. If you remember at the very beginning in the prologue of John, it talks about Jesus Christ. In him was life and the life was the light of men, right? Here in 637, it's focusing on the fact that the Father gives to Christ a gift, a people. They will come to Christ and whoever comes, he will keep. They will not lose their salvation, if you will. They cannot lose their salvation because it wasn't theirs to begin with. It was the very decree of God who gave to Christ. And Christ, as we'll probably not have time today, will accomplish his work in bringing this about. Nevertheless, he says, and note how this compares to this Philippians passage we just read, verse 38. I've come down from heaven, right? Here's the same thing. He's above, he comes down. How? In human flesh. But when he comes down, I don't come down to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And what's the will of God? You want to know what the will of God is? It's right here. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has been given to me, but will raise it up on the last day. How do I know that I'm going to have a resurrected body? How do I know I'm going to get through any of this? Because it's the will of the Father, and it's been given to Christ, and he will not lose it. He will never cast it out. But he will raise it up. For this is the will of the Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise it up on the last day. Do you see how the word glory fits into that? Don't you? See, that's where the focus needs to be ultimately. Even if this is hard to understand and comprehend. I I get that. And for us to figure this out. Remember, he's got to condescend to us to speak in, as some theologians say, baby talk, if you will, right? I mean, if you're going to go try to teach a five-year-old, I mean, there's some structure to what you're teaching them, right? But you're not going to start out with nuclear physics. You might give them some basic ideas. Well, if you drop that marble, it's going to fall on the floor. Try it. Oh, every time? Yeah, try it. So you have to condescend. And that's really what we have here. There's a lot of this aspect. It's okay if you don't fully get it. What you should get in salvation ultimately is the glory of Christ. Down to verse 44. Then he 
Jesus concludes then that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And he repeats that phrase, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is something I would argue too, that you, you recognize this kind of after the fact. There are some people then get preoccupied when they read a text of scripture like this, that those who come to Christ are a gift from the Father to the Son, and then you wonder, well, am I, am, am I that, that gift? Right? And then that troubles, I know. Or you might phrase it this way, am I one of the chosen? Am I one of the elect? William Cooper, who I, I love some of his hymns, God moves in a mysterious way. And I think he wrote, there's a fountain filled with blood. Just beautiful. He struggled with that. And John Newton tried to help him with that. And one of the ways he tried to help him with, with this idea of, am I really a gift by the Father to the Son, or am I one of the elect or one of the chosen, was to focus on the glory of Christ. I'm glad he did. He wrote some beautiful hymns, right? Focus on that. We're not told to try to figure out whether we have some sort of stamp on here that says gift. (laughs) It's about the heart. Here's the thing. Do you want Jesus Christ? That's what you focus on. Even if you couldn't figure this out under systematic theology and you hear kinds of arguments here and there. That doesn't matter. What ultimately matters is right here. Do you love Jesus Christ? Do you want him? Will you confess him as Lord? Jesus says right here in this text, verse 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Come to Christ. That's all. And that's what we preach. Come to Christ. And it's sort of like Growing up compared to new birth, you don't know how it all worked out. In fact, you had nothing to do with it at the start, did you? You personally. One day you realize you're alive. And you read some books, oh, I guess I'm breathing. And you go to try to stop breathing and you might be able to pass out if you're a little kid and you're mad and blue in the face, we call it, right? But you know what's going to happen, providing they're healthy, right? Don't push the illustration too far. If they hold the breath and pass out, it's okay because they'll start breathing again. You know why they breathe? They're alive. You know why you want Christ? You know why you want to repent? You want to know why you believe, and it is your repentance, it is your belief, it is your want, it is your desire. You have it because you're alive in Christ. You become aware of it. And yes, it's then you respond in glory because it is by grace you're saved. It's a gift of God. It's not of yourself. Otherwise, you'd have something to brag about, wouldn't you? you nothing to brag about. Nothing to boast. And it's a great joy and great comfort. So just preach and proclaim the very glory of Christ. That's what the apostles did. And call all people to repent. You know why? Because Jesus is an authority over all things and including granting to them eternal life. Look to Christ. Back to our text. 
And I'll have to finish with this. I kind of anticipated I might go a little overboard. But it's good stuff in thinking about Christ. And that's really my greater objective. Back to our text in verse 3, chapter 17 and verse 3. Jesus has this authority. The authority over all flesh ultimately to do what? To give them life. What is life? He explains it actually in his prayer in this text in verse 3. Do you see this? And this is eternal life. What? That they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now I know we sing songs about having a mansion over the hilltop or about seeing grandma or whatever you want to fill in the blank. And those aspects of that are true. But can I tell you what eternal life is? It isn't existing forever. It's about really knowing God, the only true God. And I'd say this side of eternity, we don't even know a small speck of it. Imagine the angels who have been with God in his presence since creation. And in Isaiah 6, it expresses their relationship to, to God, the seraphims, in this way. They bow down and they say, Holy, <laughs> holy, holy. They look around, the whole earth is filled with your what? Glory. I think there's a, a constant revelation of the glory that is the beauty of God's divine perfections throughout eternity. You say, well, how could that happen? They never run out. His mercy is new how often? Every morning. Can I add every minute? Maybe I might redefine that to every second. <laughs> or however you want to qualify time. It's inexhaustible. It doesn't have a beginning point. It doesn't have an ending point. It will never end. It, it is always glorious. And your capacity to understand and to know his glory in the perfected state, it will be increased. But you, since you're a finite being, you'll never contain all of it. There's always something new. Most of us get bored with stuff. It's why we put, you know, we enjoy whatever toy we have. But then next Christmas time, parents are throwing them all out, right? Trying to make room for more stuff. Because they've gotten tired of that. You won't get tired of eternity. Because in the eternal state, and what Jesus Christ will grant to you is to truly, truly, truly know God. Not your imagination of who God is. It falls short of the beauty of who he is. You'll truly know God and Jesus Christ. Beloved, and I read something recently and it disturbed me a bit. They talked about uh, 
the eternal state. Can I tell you this? Everyone will live in a quantity, if you will, of eternity. But the quality of it will be different. There are two destinations. Either you will live in the eternal presence of God and know him. Or you will live in eternal damnation under his wrath. And that's the only attribute you're going to know. There's no, nothing in scripture that talks about an annihilation of the soul. And that's a horrific thought. But Christ has come to provide atonement for all who will trust in him. And I'd encourage you now to find him. Not so that you would exist forever. You will. It's so that you will know God forever. And live in the glory of his presence forever and ever and ever. This is the prayer that Jesus prayed. Father, glorify me that I will glorify you. Let us pray. Indeed, Father, I pray Christ's prayer even now. The hour came. Christ died. He was buried and he rose again and he ascended on high. I pray that his glory would redound even this day in the hearts of your people that we would behold the glory of Christ and proclaim it to everyone. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, take a moment now to think on these things where you're at. Take a moment now.